This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We are talking in Matthew chapter 24 about the beginning of sorrows. And again, I will not be completing all this. It's 300-something slides because I've added this introduction to it that I think is really important for us to, to cover today before we move on to this. But the topic is basically going to be about the beginning of sorrows. We're going to talk about, in the book of Revelation, how quickly things come together and all the judgments that we find there. So let me just read this to you. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately asking a question. He just startled them by saying that the temple that they were was the centerpiece of their religion, that this beautiful edifice would be torn down so that one stone was left upon another, and it rattled them. And it rattled them because of the assumptions and expectations they had as Jews. You remember us talking about that? That they understood the Jews pretty much the same thing we understand about the end times, except We understand Christ comes twice. They understood the Messiah came once. So if Jesus was the Messiah, then everything that we know that's going to happen at the second coming of Christ hasn't. And they were troubled by this. And so they said, tell us, when will these things be? When will this temple be destroyed? When when will all that take place? And what will be the sign of your coming when you will present yourself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords on this earth? When do we get to rule and reign with you on the 12 thrones of Israel? And when will be the what will be the sign of the end of the age when you consummate it all in what we understand to be the millennial reign of Christ? And Jesus answered them and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, or this is what Christianity is like, or this is how Jesus really is, and will deceive many. And you will hear of cataclysmic events. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but that's not the end. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. These are not necessarily political countries. These are also people groups. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are simply the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. So Lord, we see this happening around us. We see the events that are taking place. We see tough times that are happening. We see um, notable Christian leaders begin to apostatize. We see whole churches Whole denominations go over to the dark side and embrace things that that aren't Christ-like at all. We now see that all of a sudden the deplorables are now racist. They're now white supremacists. They're now evangelicals. They're now Trump supporters, and and you know we're all being being lumped together in some sort of political entity. We see the we see the winds of tolerance coming against the church, and then anyone who doesn't 
bow down to the Antichrist at some point in time and take a mark on their hand or their forehead will not be able to transact or even live in our nation right now. Uh, in the world, we see things moving rapidly in that direction. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we hold on to that? What makes us different than everybody else? I mean, what makes us different than uh, Joshua Harris or the guy from Hillsong or the, um, even some of the people that have, in the history of our church, have been involved in this church and have apostatized and gone off into the dark uh, side and repudiated Christ and all that kind of stuff? I mean, what is the difference between us and them? One simple fact is the reality that the Holy Spirit lives in you. If there is no Holy Spirit in you, then you're trying to live the Christian life in the flesh, and it is agonizing. It is terrible. It is something you cannot do. It constantly brings pressure upon you. The things that I want to do, that I should do, that I that they tell me I ought to do, I have no power to do those. But instead, the world and the flesh and myself just drags me away. and I'm overwhelmed with guilt and fear and failure. And I'm, I'm always trying to project an image to my, they're, even not, they're not even my brothers in Christ of, hey, I'm just like you, but I know I'm not. What do I do? And you know, for years, pretty much my whole life that I know about personally, the church has presented the gospel as a decision that you make. You make a decision. I have considered the claims of Christ. I had decided to follow Jesus. And we sing those songs, or we used to sing those songs when I was growing up. No. You haven't decided to follow Jesus. You can't decide to follow Jesus. Because the reality is there's no one that seeks after God, the book of Romans says. No, not one. Do you remember that? But I do. But I, I want to give my life to Christ. Well, where does that come from? I mean, that's something the Holy Spirit puts inside of you to, to, for you to crave God, for you to, to move after God. If it's, if it's not inside of you first, salvation never takes place. And we talked about the doctrine of election, and we talked about the fact that before you pray the sinner's prayer, conversion has already taken place, or you would never pray it. You would never have that heart to follow God, because the cross of Christ is moronic. It is foolishness to those that are perishing. The thing that we have that the world does not have is the presence of God himself living inside of us. It's the very statement that got Stephen killed. God does not live in buildings made by hands. He lives in you and he lives in me and they just couldn't handle that. The Holy Spirit lives in us. What does that mean? Well, it means that he's your deposit and your guarantee of a future inheritance to come. The book of Ephesians talks about. It talks about the fact that because he lives in you, that Christ is now your friend and no weapon formed against you will prevail. That you have to, all you have to do is submit yourself to God who lives in you and resist the devil and the God that lives in you will make the devil flee. All the promises in scripture that are yours are yours by virtue of the fact that God now owns you and lives in you. No Holy Spirit, no salvation. No Holy Spirit, no fruits of salvation. I mean, you can, you can try to have love and try to have joy until somebody gets in your face. It's really unlovable. And then you're going to find that it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. So you end up just faking it like, 
like so many others do. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, then the greatest thing that you can do with your Christian life is to submit your life to the presence of the Holy Spirit, to yield yourself to him. Everything else is is just working in the flesh. But if I yield myself to the Holy Spirit, or if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, then everything changes. I don't have to worry about tomorrow because the Holy Spirit in me tells me that uh, I've got that all under control. The Holy Spirit sees the end from the beginning as Christ does and as the Father does. And if I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know Christ who lives in the presence of the Holy Spirit in me, that should be enough. If 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 I understand the, the confidence I have in God and the sovereignty of God, that same God lives in us. We spend an inordinate amount of time in John 14 talking about the, the word another. Do you remember? And I will pray to the Father, Jesus says, and he will send you another helper, another paraclete, another one that comes alongside, that they will teach you all those things. And he tells us who that other is. It's the spirit of truth who will be in you. And that word another means one of the exact same kind. Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. So how can you say, show me the Father? The Father and I are one because we're of the same essence, of the same entity. He and I don't have separate worldviews. And then he introduces the Holy Spirit to us and says, you know, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit's like, he's like me. You want to know what I'm like? I'm like the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? He's like me and the Holy Spirit. It's the whole concept of the Trinity. And so you have God Almighty living in you. And our job as Christians, we talked about this last week, is to yield ourselves and surrender ourselves to him, to be filled by him. Last week we looked at Proverbs 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will take care of everything else. My paraphrase. But how do I do that? Well, it's really simple. Surrender yourself with everything that you have to the power of the Holy Spirit and don't take that back by relying on your own understanding. And everything that you do, acknowledge and love and choose and have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, and he will tell you everything you need to know. He will guide your past. He will be like God the Father. He will be like Jesus the Son. He will be everything that you need. He will give you gifts. He will prove to the world out there and to you that you're truly saved by producing in you fruits that he is allowing you the privilege of bearing. Love and joy and peace and patience and perseverance and long-suffering and all these wondrous things that we can never muster up ourselves. Baptists don't talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit because they're afraid they're going to be charismatics. Charismatics take it to an incredible extreme sometimes where it makes everybody kind of afraid because I didn't speak in tongues. Majoring on minor things here. How do we be filled with the Holy Spirit? We talked about this last year, and I really felt pressed, impressed before we continue on about the beginning of birth pains that we're seeing right now, that we make sure that we understand how this is done and that we actually do it together as a congregation today. Let me explain just a few things to you. Some of you may remember this. Hopefully, you practice 
and have part of your ministry being filled with the Holy Spirit every day. Hopefully you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you before you came in here. And if so, thank you for that and just pray for others who have forgot that or lost that or it just it was something that was cool when we talked about it, but life became just too busy. So like salvation, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some esoteric experience as someone comes and, and we're not talking about a baptism of the Holy Spirit and all that. That happened the moment that you were saved. We're talking about these, these fillings that happen daily, that can happen hourly, that, that can happen when you're, you feel the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. As you yield to him, he fills that void. And all of that is done by faith, just like your salvation. Key verse here. Colossians 2.6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord. And how did that happen? Well, by faith. I, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to walk somewhere. I didn't have to, you know, cut off my right arm. I didn't have to do penance. I didn't have to have rosary beads. I didn't have to do any of that. All I had to do was believe, believe what has been revealed to me. I received Christ by faith. By faith, not by works, not adding anything to it or taking anything away. Christ came into my life by faith. So as I have therefore received Jesus Christ by faith, that's the salvation part that was all God. Now the sanctification part, which is you, so walk in him. Same way I received him is the same way I should walk in him. And how is that? By faith. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving, being filled with the Holy Spirit is done the same way that salvation is, and it's simply by faith. Though you are filled with the Holy Spirit by faith and faith alone, it is important to recognize, we talked about this, that several factors contribute to preparing your heart for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I shared with you last year, from various different writers who had written during the Philadelphia church age, their steps and all that kind of stuff. We kind of boiled it down to just a couple of them. All this does is basically prepare your heart to be, to receive this filling of the Holy Spirit who already lives in you. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit's in you, but you keep him locked up in a room and all the rest of you is doing it on your own merits and your own skill and your own works and your own wits. And all of a sudden we say, no, 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 I need to, I need to open up the room that I keep the Holy Spirit locked in and let him enter into other rooms in my life. And so these are kind of steps for the preparation of that. Let me just give them to you really quickly. One, you must want it. You must want it more than money, more than a happy marriage, more than fame and fortune, more than having your questions answered, more than, than anything, you must have a desire to live a life that will please the Lord. I want this. I want it more than anything. I want a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, why are they blessed? What, what, what in this carnal fallen world, why would those people hungering and thirsting, the deep guttural needs, the basic needs of man, hungering, thirsting for righteousness. Why are they called blessed? Because they will receive righteousness. Because they will be filled. The gift of righteousness is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of truth is the gift of the Holy Spirit. All that comes from him. 
You must have a desire to live a life to please the Lord. Now that's hard because we want to have a desire to please the Lord in the stuff that doesn't really matter to us. But some of the things that if we please the Lord are going to cost us something, cost us a relationship, cost us money, cost us a job promotion, cost us our freedom, or cost us our sincerely held convictions, then we have a tendency of backing off. Maybe I shouldn't be so bold. Maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I'll just take my light and put it up under a bushel so people will leave me alone. It doesn't work that way in our, in our nation, in our culture anymore. Two. Two. You must be willing. Doesn't say that you have to surrender everything to him because I'm not sure. I mean, that's like a process that takes place your whole life. But you have to be willing to surrender your life totally, without reservation, irrevocably to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the whole idea of dependency. We talked about that again last week. Trust in the Lord with all your mind, will, emotion, personality, everything. Everything, all your lab, remember the Hebrew word? And lean not on your own comprehension and discernment and perception and understanding. Well, I think it should be this way. Well, I think I should do it this way. This is how I was taught. This seems how it's supposed to work with me. Don't lean for support on any of that. In all, each, every, everyone, without exception, in all your ways or path of life, acknowledge him. That's yada. Same word in the, in the Greek is gnosko, him. And he will direct your paths. It's a, it's a, it's a desire for total dependence on him. We are doulosses. We are slaves of him. Really hard for prideful American entrepreneur by our own wits. We created something kind of people. Romans 12, one and two gives a classic picture of what this looks like. I beseech, I urge, I beg you, Paul saying. You therefore, brethren, well, on what basis are you encouraging us to do that? By the mercies of God, by the mercy he's already shown you, not, not, not the fear of judgment, not his heavy handedness, by the mercies of God that present your bodies a living sacrifice. A sacrifice is supposed to be something of value. A sacrifice is supposed to be something that honors God. And I have dishonored him with my body. I've dishonored him with what I've brought into my mind, what I've watched, what I've done, who I've, who I've been with. I've dishonored my body, uh, in, in, in what I've devoted my life to and, in, in who I've desired to be with. I, I've done nothing. I have nothing left. I, there's nothing in me worthy of sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, that's, that's what Satan would put in your head. That's what you will think about yourself. But God thinks differently. He calls you holy, and no matter what situation your life is in, God will accept your offer. He, he is marvelous in making beautiful things out of what we consider trash. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's, it's what you should do based on the mercies of God. And do not be conformed to this world, to this cosmos, but be transformed how? By thinking differently. 
by the renewing of your mind. And in doing so, you will prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will tell you what his will is by directing your paths. And I can honestly tell you, I've known Christ for a long time. Long time. I have spent a lot of my life letting him direct my paths. I've spent a lot of my life asking him to bless the way I direct my paths. And his ways are always better. My ways always turn to disaster because he doesn't want me to rely on my ways. And so I I go out to the end of where I think we're supposed to go and I turn around and God's taking his kingdom that way. Three, I need to prepare myself to receive the Holy Spirit. I need to to prepare myself to to ask him to, to take over different areas of my life. And so you confess every known sin that the Holy Spirit calls to your remembrance. Every single one. And when you do, you realize that you will experience this cleansing, this refreshing, this, this overwhelming sense of peace and joy and confidence that we find in the promise in 1 John 1.9. Do you remember it? It's an if-then promise. If there's a condition, and then there's two then promises. This is a great one. All we have to do is one thing, and God actually does Two, in, in uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we have to do three things. There's three ifs there, and then God gives us one then. This kind of reverses this. If the condition, we confess our sins. I mean, all you're doing is agreeing with God. Like you're going to tell him something he doesn't already know. God, I'm really mad at you. I really, I just, I'm just, I'm just so bitter at you because of the way my life has turned out and, and I wanted this to happen and, and you didn't let that happen. And, but I don't want to tell you that God because I don't want you to know how I truly feel. Then your whole view of God is skewed. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He knows everything. You're just telling God what he already knows. God, I messed up. I've sinned greatly. I, man, I got myself in a really bad jam and I don't know what to do. I feel the guilt on me. I don't even feel like praying anymore. I feel like everybody else has a relationship with you, but I don't. I don't know how to lead my children. I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know anything anymore, God, because of the mess I've got myself into. And I knew I was doing wrong when I did it. I did it anyway. These are premeditated. It doesn't say that we have to do penance. It doesn't say that we have to wail and, and rip our beards out and throw ashes and dust in it. It doesn't say any of that. It simply says, if we confess our sins, he is good, and he is faithful, and he is just. And he will, first, he will promise to forgive our sins, which is marvelous. It is not. And he'll promise to help us no longer sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to take that desire away. In the... In the terminology of spiritual warfare, if you've ever studied or been involved in that, to break the chain or break the bond that we have allowed Satan to plant in our souls because of the sins that we have committed. Paul talks about tearing down strongholds in our lives. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I do. I want to surrender my life to the Lord. I I'm going to pray and I'm going to, 
I'm going to confess all the sins that I have. And then I'm going to live this life of of spiritual breathing that we talked about where I can live in a constant state of victory with the Lord even when I mess up. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Again, you are not filled with the Holy Spirit because of your desire to be filled or because you confess your sins or because you present yourself as a living sacrifice. Those are works. You are filled with the Holy Spirit because of faith. Faith in God's promise and faith in God's command. This is so important to understand. He gives a command and then he gives a promise. And the filling of the Holy Spirit comes when I believe and place my faith in his command and in his promise. First, the command. It's really simple. And here's the command. Do not be drunk with wine in which there is dissipation. Okay. But contrary, another command, be filled with the Spirit. I don't know how. I don't know what that means. Um, I understand the drunk with wine, so I'm not going to be drunk with wine. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you've given me a command. And you've given me a command, and obviously you expect me to do it. And if you've given me a command, obviously you will honor that command. Obviously it's your will for my life to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise it wouldn't be a command. And so, And otherwise it should be something that I can do. Why would God give his children a command they could never do. That's my dad saying, I command you to dunk a basketball. Okay, how about an eight-foot goal? No, a ten-foot. I cannot do that. I can't. Well, if you're not going to do that, then I'll have no fellowship with you at all. God's not like that. He gives us a command and expects us to do it. And then a promise. A promise based on a command that we know is his will. First John 5. Now, this is a confidence trustworthiness, feeling of assurance that we have in him. We have an if, and then we have a then, and then we have an if condition, and then we have a then promise. There's two of these that are connected together. If I do the if, God promises to do the then, and I just have to have faith in his word. Here's what he says. Confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will. Well, um, God, Ephesians 3 says that that one of your commands is the fact that I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, so is that according to your will? Yes, that's a command. Yes, it's of course it's a command. Of course it's, it's my will. And there's many other examples in here of that. And, and so I have confidence and assurance in you, God, that if I ask anything according to your will, which is, Lord, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you hear me. That even if I'm in a sinful state, even if I'm doing things I shouldn't do and I confess those sins, and, and even if I'm, I feel bad about myself, and even if I feel like I'm, I'm the most lowly and unworthy person on the planet, and even if my problems are absolutely overwhelmingly, that you will hear my voice, that you will hear me when I pray, especially if I pray according to your will, and I know it's your will for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes. Second condition. And if we know that he hears us, and he just said that he did, then whatever we whatever we ask, even to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then the promise is we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. It's all on faith. You don't have to beg him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to, you know, 
pray for six hours. And, you know, if you pray for five hours and 45 minutes, it's not enough. You don't have to reach a certain scale. It's something that God wants you to be. If he's given you the Holy Spirit as the deposit and the guarantee of your salvation, why would he not want you to be filled by his presence living in you? It's all done by faith. I have a desire for that. I confess my sins. And then I have to ask. I always think it's amazing that he expects us to ask. You know, he expects us to tell other people about Jesus, yet he's the one that does salvation. He expects us to pray, yet he already knows what our needs are before we even ask them. But he expects us to ask anyway, like a, like a father coming up to his son. Hey, Dad, uh, I want to get to know you better. Would you fill me with more of yourself? Would you let me think your thoughts? Would you, would you, would you let me be just like my dad? And you ask. You ask him by faith, knowing that he will answer because it's according to his will. And you can pray something like this. And again, I um, uh, this, the words aren't magical. They're just laid out here to give you an idea of what you probably should pray or something like that. And as soon as we finish this, we're going to take a, a few minutes and I'm going to ask you just to go through this process because we all need it. Lord, do I have a desire? to really be filled by the Spirit. Do I? Do I? I do. I really, I do. What's it worth to you? Is it, is it worth more than doing the things that you want to do? I know I got, I got this thing I made a commitment to tomorrow, and I know it's it's ungodly, and I know I shouldn't go, but if I get filled with the Spirit today, I know that you're not going to want me to do that, but I really want to. How about if I do it on Tuesday? You can forget that happening. doesn't work that way. It's a desire to be more like Christ, and you confess those sins, and and then you pray. Dear Father, I need you. I need you. I hunger and thirst for a more vital relationship with you. Lord, I have a desire to be filled by the Spirit. I'm willing to surrender my life. And Lord, you're going to have to help me with that. But I'm willing to surrender everything that I have to you, even those things that are so close to me, and I just hold on to and don't think I can live without. I'm willing to give them to you. Lord, I've been admit that I've been in control of my life, and as a result, I've sinned against you. Thank you for forgiving my sin through Jesus Christ's death on the cross for me. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I now confess and I turn from my sin and surrender the control of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give it totally to you by faith. I invite you to fill me with the Holy Spirit as you commanded me to be filled. You promised to fill me if I asked according to your will, Lord, and this is according to your will, and so I'm asking. I pray this in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. To demonstrate my faith, I now thank you for filling me with your Holy Spirit and for taking control of my life. Amen. Well, uh, what happens if we do that and we don't feel any different? Why would you think you would? Why would you assume that all of a sudden you're supposed to, oh, I had this cold chill come down me. So that must be God. And now your faith is based on this. So the next time you get ready to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, that doesn't happen. It didn't work. Why would we do that? Do you remember this? 
It's a principle I've lived by my whole life. Every time I lead someone to Christ, I lay this down in front of them, usually with a cell phone and a wallet or something else, and, and I explain to them, this is how Satan will attack you in your salvation. The proper way of us to live is fact is the engine and faith is the coal car that feeds the engine and feelings are the caboose. I've asked the Holy Spirit to come and take control of my life. I've surrendered my life according to what the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded me to do. I've I've fulfilled the if-then promise. My faith feeds the fact of what I have done. And so therefore I believe even though I don't feel all Satan tries to do is reverse fact and feeling so that your faith is not based on the facts. Your faith is based on how you feel. You know, I, I really felt close to the Lord yesterday and I knew he loved me, but now I don't feel close to him today, so I don't think I'm saved anymore. And your life's going to be turmoil the rest of your life if you believe that. No, it doesn't matter how I feel. Doesn't matter. You may ask the Holy Spirit to feel, to fill you, and you may feel a refreshing. You may feel, you know, a lightness. You may feel just joy and peace, or you may feel nothing. That's why it's based on faith. It's not based on how you feel. You meet the conditions, and He promises to do His part. I have to have a desire to truly live a life that pleases to him, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do I hunger and thirst after him? You need to come to a conclusion of that yourself. I do. I do. Burning my ships in the harbor, I do. No turning back. I am willing. Lord, I'm going to mess up. Lord, I don't even know how to do this, but I am willing to turn over to you every aspect of my life, my personal relationships, my desires, my wants, my future, the the past that keeps holding me back, everything over to you, because you are the Lord. Lord, I want to confess every sin right now that the Holy Spirit brings to my remembrance. Is it every sin you probably need to confess? No, but it's the ones that the Holy Spirit knows you need to confess now, and he'll reveal those to you. And I confess all those, and I experience the the forgiveness that comes from confessing those sins. It's all I have to do, confess those sins. And Lord, I'm asking you now. I prepared myself the best I know how. I'm asking you to come and fill me with your Spirit. And he will do that. You may have to do this once a day. You may have to do this more than once a day. It should be this whole idea of spiritual breathing. I grieve him, and then I confess that. Ah, I inhale a relationship with him again. That's how the Christian life, the victorious Christian life, is to be lived. And if we can't learn this, the situations that are going to happen to Christians in our culture as we see the day of the Lord approaching, are going to rattle you to the core. This is where victory comes from. Amen? So it's about 7 to 12. Why don't we take 5 or 10 minutes, and you privately, just where you're at right now, search your heart and see if you have a true desire for his righteousness. And then surrender your life to him to the best you know how. Tell him that you are willing. I'm willing to turn my business. I'm willing to turn my marriage. I'm willing to turn my children. I'm willing to turn my future. I'm willing to turn everything over to you, God, because after all, you are God. And Lord, I want to confess all the sins that you bring to my mind. And when you ask him, 
Lord, would you reveal to my mind ways that I have grieved you? He will begin presenting those to you, and when he does, you confess them. Don't justify them, because you're asking him to tell you what they are, and don't say, well, that really wasn't a sin. I mean, come on, God. He would be telling you those (laughs) if they weren't. And then pray, and by faith, appropriate him into your life. And then we'll say a few words after that. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then do this. Father, would you reunite us with the joy of